Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Justin Kolbeck, CEO and co-founder of WildType. WildType is on a mission to create the cleanest, most sustainable seafood on the planet, starting with salmon. This is the first founder of a cell-based food company that I've had on the show. And as someone who doesn't know much about cell-based food or commercial fishing, this was quite eye-opening for me. We talk about the current state of the ocean, the supply chain for fish, the process for producing cell-based food, and their approach to quick feedback loops when conducting trials. Without further ado, here's Justin. Justin, thank you so much for being here. How are you? Thanks, Mike. I'm awesome. How are you today? Really great. Thanks. When were you first introduced to cell-based seafood and meat? That would have been 2015, actually. So my good friend and now co-founder, Aria Elfenbein, who I've known for a decade now, that means we're both becoming old guys, I guess. (laughs) He had just come back from this conference in the Netherlands where Mark Post uh, had demonstrated his burger uh, that he made for the first time using this technology. And Aria was like, Justin, this is how we're going to solve a million problems on the planet, sustainability, health, all these big things that we can get into today. So really, the credit goes to him for this wasn't his field. He's a cardiologist and a molecular biologist. And he had just heard about this and got interested in, in it. And so he attended and, you know, we were talking about uh, some big problems in the world at the time. And very quickly, our attention turned to seafood and, and you know, the rest is kind of history. So interestingly, the, the conversations that eventually led to wild type go back to go back to six years now. That's awesome. And were you always driven to make a big impact on the world to change the world ever since you were younger? Or what is that drive? Great question. Yes, I think so. One of the great things about this country is that I I think from a very young age, we're sort of given this idea that like, hey, with enough hard work and dedication and focus, like you can, you know, make a big change in, in the world. And I think that expectation is kind of accelerated with each generation, right? For me, when I first started thinking about making an impact, it it was, I remember in high school, I remember thinking how cool it would be to be a diplomat for the US, right? To work as your full-time job in the service of peace between nations, right? I think that was like my first recollection of a very big, uh, very big dream for at the time, a very small person. And I ended up pursuing that and actually living that dream, which was an incredible experience. And I think very much in, in many ways shaped what was to come later professionally for me. What was also this attraction to entrepreneurship instead of working for a large organization? I know you've worked for large organizations in the past, but what's also that journey been like? So I grew up in a family from, let's say, limited means. You know, I, I remember trading in food stamps for my mom at the grocery store because she was a little ashamed of that single mom raising four kids. I didn't really know too many people in sort of our family circle who had been to college. Um, very, very much, you know, working class kind of world. 
And my mom always emphasized hard work, focus on education, study hard and so on. And that did pay off, um, got into college. And not long after that, I started working as a diplomat, uh, and, you know, the, which is in a lot of ways, the opposite of being an entrepreneur, right? Part of this gigantic organization, very well-defined career track. You just kind of need to survive, not get fired and you'll get promoted um, as long as you're, you know, doing a good job in so many ways that the exact opposite. But I remember thinking when I joined, like I've made it right. Like I have a career, I have a steady paycheck. I have a, a job that I can be proud of. Like what else would I want? I remember specifically thinking, I have this pension, right? If I like just stay in this job, like, and nothing goes wrong, like my future would be taken care of too. And so, you know, fast forward uh, a bunch of years in the foreign service, I decided to take a break, go get an MBA. And I had met uh, in school, a bunch of people that had started companies that were both trying to solve big social problems and make some money, right? And in particular, I had met someone who uh, designed a, a bassinet cover for babies that was like a, effectively a mosquito net. And it turned out this was like a wildly popular product and it reduced the incidence of infant malaria dramatically. And so suddenly my mind just expanded hugely. And I was like, oh my God, like you can also have a big impact and not be working for the government or not be working for an NGO. But at the time I remember thinking like, oh, that's not for me, right? Like I don't have the ability to take those kind of risks, right? That really stuck with me. Like when I was a little kid, I never even thought of like that I'd have the ability to, to take a risk and, and go down the entrepreneurial path. And, and, and I think as I've reflected on like what's happening in our society today and like the inequity that exists, right? To a large extent, traditional entrepreneurship, I think doesn't lend itself well to people who can't take risks, right? Either with their career or financially, right? And so after uh, business school, I decided to work as a, as a strategy consultant for a while, had a, had a great salary. But at that point I had saved up enough where like, if wild type didn't work out, like I wouldn't myself and my family and my fiance at the time, who's now my wife, we wouldn't be destitute. Right. And so honestly, I feel like to a large extent, the, the ability to take big risks depends on the stability that sort of exists around you, both socially and, and financially. Right. And like, I, I know your question was sort of, wasn't sort of along those lines, but you know, I, as I've been thinking about my own entrepreneurial experience, I just don't think it would have been possible for me. Because uh, one, I wouldn't have thought that that was a, something that people did. And then two, I wasn't sure if we, you know, could actually take the financial risk associated with it. So, so anyway, long story short, you know, I, I feel like America is going through this big soul searching thing right now about equity and so on. Does, does everybody have equal access to being an entrepreneur in this country? I don't know. If they grew up like I did and were worried about just having a steady job from paycheck to paycheck, the idea of potentially taking a huge swing and not having a, a paying job for a year just isn't possible, right? And of course, you know, the social economic side of those things also reflects in a very big way gender and the color of your skin in this country, right? So anyway, we don't have to go down that path, but like, this is just sort of what I've been reflecting on, on you know, with respect to the state of entrepreneurship in the United States in the year 2021. That's very inspiring, just learning more about the upgrading and just also how you think about risk. What also I thought was very interesting, just thinking about the risk of, of entrepreneurship or being an entrepreneur and how that MBA experience really opened your eyes, per se, in terms of that empowerment that you could actually see happening with entrepreneurship. But you also hedged your risk. You were working in consulting, but also doing wild type maybe on the side, right? That's right. I was moonlighting for a year, actually that first year. So I didn't go all in uh, initially for that reason. Yeah. When you did think about entrepreneurship, did you ever think, was it the opportunity in wild type 
that is what compelled you to start entrepreneurs, uh, to, to actually be an entrepreneur? Or did you think after you maybe got that bug or it kind of hit you in the MBA that even when I do have a full-time job, I could see myself kind of being a tinkerer um, and tinkering on these ideas no matter what, just because I think it's so cool. I'd say I've always been a tinkerer, even when I was working in the foreign service, I always had some side project that was unrelated to my job that I was just personally passionate about that. It's like everybody would go home at the end of the night and I was like, there working on this thing, right? Same thing when I was a consultant. And so I think after I got inspired by some of my classmates in business school and people at the broader university, Ari and I, and actually one other friend would get together on the weekends. And we had this project where we came up with like a hundred potential business ideas. And it was like, this was just more for fun. Not like, I'm, I don't think I'm actually going to pursue one of these things. And recently I went back and looked at that list because uh, I, I actually got got a beer with one of the, the other guy, not, not Aria, uh, last week. And a lot of those ideas were super dumb and none of them had the sort of like big impact that, that Wild Type did. So, so when Aria came back from this conference and was telling me, you know, that we could make meat and seafood without animals, I immediately started kind of connecting the dots to some things I had seen along along my own personal journey with respect to food security, right? Um, in places like Afghanistan and Pakistan and here, by the way, in the United States. And this like colossal environmental problem that we're facing as our generation, which I think, you know, this is our challenge, right? For anybody who's sort of in working mode right now or all the way up to like pre-retirement, our generation somehow needs to turn the ship a little bit on this environmental crisis, right? And so the promise of being able to make meat more sustainably, more equitably, and making it sort of accessible in the very long run to more people was just too too good to not pursue. <laughs> so that's that's how this all started for me. And then, you know, after a year of working on it part-time, I realized that, you know, if we're going to get this anywhere, I got to go all in. And so... When you and Ari decided, okay, we know what the vision is. We know the amount of impact that we want to make with creating a cell-based seafood company. What was those first steps like? Because I'd imagine it's a pretty complicated process. You know, it was an interesting one. So, you know, just to go back, I mean, this was the fall of 2016. At the time, there were only two companies in the space that that were kind of out there in public. Um, Supermeat in Israel and Memphis Meats uh, in the Bay Area. Uh, where we are. It was so obvious to us at the time that there was this colossal miss with seafood for a bunch of reasons. It's funny, you know, as a former consultant, I have to think in consulting terms. And so, of course, like we drew a two by two matrix, right, with like price on one axis and like problematic production methods, let's say on the other, right? So if you have like something that's expensive and like currently problematic to produce, that's probably a good product to use a new method of production to, to tackle, right? But in the end, we ended up settling on, on seafood for a few reasons. I mean, one, seafood is the largest source of protein for our species, right? So it's a trillion dollar a year uh, annual turnover market across the world. Two, I think seafood, you know, there's been a lot of buzz in the press with, you know, Seaspiracy, this recent paper that came out in Nature that I can talk about some of the, let's say, negative externalities of seafood production, right? There are so many. We can, I'd be happy to get into those if if you're interested. And, you know, certainly people that are in the seafood industry today are working like hell to try to fix and ameliorate some of these problems, but they're big and it's going to take a generational shift. And then third, and I don't, you know, don't mean to suggest that it's in this order priority. I'd say this is probably Aria's, don't have to put words in his mouth, but his first First priority is we wanted to make a healthy product, right? He's a cardiologist and there's a lot of burgers on the market. 
I don't know if I need to, uh, you know, alternative burgers on the market. I don't know if I need to make another one, right? If it's still going to be a high in saturated fat and I still wouldn't be feeding myself that or my kids that every day. So working on something like seafood that is intrinsically highly nutritious, like lots of omega-3s, low in saturated fat, great lean protein, that was super appealing. So even though we started with this fancy consulting matrix, it was just obvious that seafood needed to be our focus. What are the negative parts of the seafood process? I know obviously it's, it's pretty complex, but maybe if you could just go over it briefly, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So I, look, I, there's certainly one, one element that is not controversial wherever you are in terms of the, the spectrum of you know, environmental or political beliefs. And, and that is that there are, in fact, only so many fish in the sea, right? People just kind of intrinsically get this. And just to back up for a second, so there are two ways currently that you can get seafood. You can go hunt it, basically wild catch it by fishing in streams and oceans and so on, or you can farm it in the form of aquaculture. So we'll just kind of cover those two. So one big challenge on the wild catch side is that there are limited stocks, I just read an article in the Seattle Times yesterday that is really concerning, right? So most of us who kind of live along the coast know that we're seeing just a fraction of the returns of the kinds of seafood that we're used to eating. So salmon returns on the Columbia River, for example, between Washington and Oregon State are something like 5% of historical levels just within our generation, right? So like within the last you know, 40 years, let's say, we've seen just this precipitous decline. This article, however, was about the size of the fish, right? So they're coming back so small that whole foods actually, uh, they don't meet whole foods sort of size requirements. And a big seafood restaurant up here called Ivers also is turning back some of these fish because they're just too small. And we know based on watching other fish populations collapse, like cod, for example, that those two things in combination, declining fish returns and smaller sizes are flashing red lights that this is a fishery in danger of collapse, right? So I think it's not controversial that there's just a scarce resource and we've probably pushed it a little bit further than we should have in terms of um, pulling fish out of the sea. The aquaculture side is difficult too. So something like a third to two thirds of all of the feed that is given in aquaculture comes from wild catch fish, things like sardines and anchovies that are ground up and fed to bigger fish like uh, salmon, for example. If you believe that pulling fish out of the sea is probably not so sustainable, then aquaculture doesn't necessarily get you there on current practices. Now, so many companies around the world acknowledge this and are working really hard to put their salmon, for example, on a vegan diet with like soy, for example, in these little pellets. Um, so we're, you know, we're getting there and that's getting better. Also a big challenge is that our oceans are warming. So I've talked to aquaculture producers um, who tell me that as the seas are warming in the Southern hemisphere, they've had to move further South, their fish farms and up North, they've had to move further North. And there are just lots of problems with, you know, salmon escaping from pens. And like, for example, in the, in the Puget Sound in Washington, a bunch of salmon escaped uh, a net pen and, you know, Atlantic salmon, which are not native to the area, tens of, if not hundreds of thousands of them. And since then open net uh, aquaculture uh, farming has been, has been banned. Similar efforts are underway in, in Canada. So those are two challenges, let's say. But the bigger challenge, I'd say the, the thing that's on all of our minds is climate change, right? So our oceans today contain 93% of our planet's carbon. Um, per acre, they are a more dense carbon sink than the densest rainforests on the planet today. There was just a study that came out in Nature about a month ago that showed that deep sea trawling so carbon settles into the water and into the, the deep sea soil, right? So as, as trawling uh, fishing 
disturbs that soil, it releases it into the ocean and eventually into the atmosphere. So they, they quantified that the carbon footprint of, of trawling fishing is equivalent to the entire aviation sector combined, right? And so on one hand, as I mentioned, we're depleting the natural stocks of fish. That can lead to a disequilibrium in the sea, right? So if we've taken all the salmon out, what happens to the things that eat the salmon, right? They start to starve and, and die off. And what about the things that the salmon were eating? They become too populous, um, right? And then suddenly we're throwing off the balance in our oceans, which is something we don't understand really well. So I think we're playing a colossal game of risk, honestly, if we're not thinking about alternative ways to source our seafood. Like, What was the reason why you decided to focus on salmon as opposed to another type of fish? So, you know, in a lot of ways, salmon is kind of America's fish. It used to be like canned tuna. That was like the most consumed fin fish, right? In the U.S., the most consumed seafood is shrimp. After that is salmon. It displaced tuna not too long ago. And so, first of all, it's just a, a very popular uh, fish, right, that we eat in this country. Second, from basically the Bay Area all the way up through Alaska is salmon country, right? And so the Pacific salmon that grow here, Chinook and Coho, other types of Pacific salmon are kind of our hometown fish, right? So it makes sense to work on restoring something that's literally in our in our backyard waters. And then... Third, salmon is one of these fish that's super versatile from a food perspective, right? So we eat it raw in sushi. We will smoke it and have it on our bagel. We'll like grind it up and put it in our cream cheese. We'll smoke it and barbecue it on a, on a cedar plank. It just gives you all of these options from a, from a culinary perspective where it's like, even if you're not like a seafood person where you, where you don't like fish, you'll probably eat salmon, right? And I think that sort of explains why it's such a popular fish in the U.S. And for all the, the reasons I just gave from an environmental perspective, we feel like if we can help create, you know, supplement the activities of people in the conventional fishing industry with a new source of salmon, we can take a little bit of pressure off of off of those key things. That makes a lot of sense why you would choose salmon. And, and also it's just really interesting hearing some of those uh, statistics. As well, just from like, the consumer perspective, it seems like there's been a lot of content and a lot of attention towards, you know, eating less meat, land meat, but not nearly as much as eating less seafood. I mean, I feel like one diet that I think has maybe gained traction is, for example, like the pescatarian diet of being, you know, eating more so seafood rather than land meat. Why do you think that's the case? So, boy, this would be a great question for Arya, my uh, medical doctor, co-founder. But I think to channel him for a minute, I think what he would say is there's a, a lot of momentum for people trying to eat healthier diets, right? Red meat is high in saturated fat. By the way, it also has the highest carbon footprint of the types of meat that we eat. So it's kind of this double threat to our health and the environment, right? So part of the reason I think people are moving toward seafood is that it, it's not those things, right? Very little saturated fat, high cardioprotective fats like omega-3s, lean protein. It's just one of these great foods that you can eat. But here's the thing, right? Seafood today, uh, because we've unfortunately polluted our waters over the last few hundred years of industrialization, our fish carry that burden with them, right? So things like mercury, um, by some estimates, people believe that we ingest a credit card worth of plastic a week from the microplastics that fish accumulate, which is just a shocking amount of plastic that we're putting into our body. And uh, antibiotics, right, that we use to keep fish healthy. Now, certainly 
many aquaculture organizations are trying to move away from that, have successfully moved away from that, but it is still a factor. So we've got like, on one hand, the healthiest form of animal protein that we can eat is seafood with all of this stuff in it, right? It's like, in my mind, the only thing that we just accept in, in our diet, that we just accept all of these negative things uh, that come along with it. And so from a health perspective, that was also a big reason why we wanted to choose seafood because we think we can just make a better version that's just free of all that stuff. You never have to think about it again, right? You don't have to like look at some guideline about what women, pregnant women and young children can eat in terms of like <laughs> amounts. You just eat as much as you want because it doesn't have contaminants in it. And, and I know that seems like kind of a low bar, but I'm shocked that it hasn't been done yet, right? Why are we all collectively just accepting to eat polluted seafood? So what's been that process like be building a lab for making like a cell-based salmon facility? How do you even go about starting that? Yeah. Well, look, the first step in the whole process is the cells, right? That is the, the basis of our product is the basis of all the food we eat. But by the way, both plants and animals, which is why we've never been a fan of this cell-based term. It's confusing, right? Because plants are also cell-based. The first step was to get the cells, right? And so it turns out there are very few established cell lines. Think of, without geeking out on the science too much, think about cell lines as like yeast starters, right? Once you have one going, they can last for actually generations. So cell lines for the types of fish that we eat on a regular basis just were not, they don't exist, right? They did exist for things like humans, of course, because uh, we've been doing studies on you know human biology for uh, decades with respect to cell biology for other mammals that we study for even for things like beef and chickens and so on but seafood there were none so our first step was to start our starter lines and that took a while because uh, as you might appreciate there's not really good reason to study how you grow new fish cell lines outside of the animal right they're biologically so different than humans they're not a good model organism. And so there was just a whole lot of trial and error in that first year of trying to get it right. But we succeeded. And, you know, our oldest cell lines are coming up on three years old now, which is kind of fun. That's awesome. And so once you're able to get those cell lines going, what's then the process in terms of actually actually being able to produce um, like a full salmon, for example? Yeah. The next step in the process is to give cells the right environment to kind of turn and, and mature into the type of meat that we eat on a regular basis, or, you know, in our case, uh, fish. So um, there's a few ways to do that. Um, cells are just incredibly interesting, right? They respond to their environment in an incredibly complex way. So if you give them a rigid environment, they'll become more rigid. Uh, if you give them kind of a soft environment, they'll become uh, softer types of cells, like let's say fat or meat versus the rigid ones potentially becoming bone or cartilage. And so we had to come up with a way to give the cells the right home to grow into and to mature, to become the types of meat that we're eating. And I don't know if you've had a chance to see the, uh, you know, our most recent products, but that it's been the, the result of years of work of trying to refine the cells and refine the cells home. Um, and now where we are, big picture is now that we've kind of figured that out, how do we make enough of this stuff to really make a dent in the, in the global food system, right? That's really where, where our team has turned our energy at this point. Obviously, you need to raise capital. Your R&D costs, I'd imagine, are pretty significant. What was that process like raising capital and how did you do it? <laughs> you know, this is an interesting question because the answer varied dramatically depending on the year. So we, f we first started having these conversations in 2016. That year, people were like, what? <laughs> like, what are you trying to do? Um, it was just a lot of like 
incredulous responses. You know, we started, I think, in earnest trying to raise a, a seed round at the end of 2017. And by that point, a few very forward-thinking, forward-leaning investors had heard about this and understood the potential, right? For there, There's just this shift, right? People want to eat food that's good for them and it's good for the planet. It's made in a transparent way that we sort of can understand and point to, right? All of those things are challenges today in our food system. And so if that's what consumers want, and by the way, if we're going to be 3 billion more people on the planet by the middle part of this century, each of whom wants to eat a heck of a lot more meat, and if we want to be able to satisfy that in a way that doesn't ruin our planet, we need to be innovative, right? So I think it was kind of a, almost a wing and a prayer. <laughs> like, hey, Justin, Aria, we, we understand what you're trying to build. You, you've thought this through, you've planned it well, we believe in you. But like in the back of their minds, I think they're just like, we'll see if this happens. Like the main thing, as you, as you probably know, Mike, you've talked to so many VCs, you don't want to be the person that missed the next big thing, right? And occasionally that means getting ahead of your skis on where the, uh, where the industry is at any given time. And I, and I think that's what the world was like in 2016, 2017. When we raised our series A in 2019, it was different, I'd say. Like people had heard about this. It was it was a thing. It was more about like, can you show me a path to turning this into a business, right? And and a lot of good questions about that. Very great questions, actually. Now, as as I'm having conversations with investors, well, first of all, a lot more people are coming to us. So I think this idea that this is a crazy idea is long past. I think everybody sort of sees now that we need a new way. We need to pull every lever we can, right? Plant-based, yes. More sustainable conventional aquaculture and agriculture, yes. Cell-cultivated food, yes. Eating less meat, yes, right? All of those things. We can make something really cool. We can make a piece of salmon sashimi that's awesome. That tastes really good. It doesn't need to hide behind breading or be covered in sauce. Just eat it on its own and it's great. That's really compelling to people. So, so now the conversations that we're having are like, tell me about how we get to really big scale. What needs to be true for that to happen? So I'd say the nature of the conversation has really changed. And this is a short period of time, right? We're talking about like four years here. I'm talking about like 40 years. I think if that's any indication of what's to come, you know, I think we're just at the very beginning of this phase of food production. And I think the most exciting days lie ahead. How many pounds of meat do you plan to launch with, per se, or produce, if that makes sense? As much as we can. <laughs> so, so look, the, the idea is, um, in the long run, the, the big picture vision, right, is, is to make a new source of seafood, in our case, that is the most sustainable on the planet, the cleanest with respect to the absence of the environmental pollutants that I talked about, and accessible to people at a very low cost, right? So I talked a little bit about food security at the beginning. We have around the world, 250 million people living in a state of food insecurity. In the United States, 10% of our population say they don't have enough to eat, which is, you know, for the wealthiest nation ever in the history of this planet, just a disgrace, right? So where we need to go is that we need to be able to provide super nutritious food, like what we're making, at a cost that's cheaper than anybody's ever imagined, right? So, so that's the long-term vision of where we need to go. And in the short term, like what that translates to, if you kind of wind the clock back to the near future, it's giving people access to that, these products for uh, basically to give us input on what they think, to guide future product line selection and so on. And, and so for us, that means launching with a few select restaurant partners around the country um, and perhaps overseas 
um, to feature our products on the menu, right? So you go into a sushi restaurant and you order a piece of sushi, let's say wild type nigiri, out it comes, a perfect piece of uh, salmon nigiri on a bed of rice. And the only way you're going to know that it's wild type is because of the little W that's stamped in the wasabi, right? Otherwise, you're not going to know. And initially, it'll be a little bit more expensive. Um, not a whole lot more expensive. As you're forecasting, when do you see that in terms of the cost and kind of it being, as you said, when you first go to launch, it's going to be more expensive because it's the first launch. But at what point do you think it will become cheaper? So this is strictly a function of scale, to be honest. Um, the, the bigger the scale, the lower the cost. If I had a billion dollars today, I could just skip a few of the steps and just build the very biggest version and just take a huge chunk out of our cost structure. But we have to earn that, right? We need and kind of move stepwise. And by the way, this is the same thing that's that Impossible Foods is doing, that Beyond Meat is in the middle of doing. It's kind of scaling up little by little. I think all of us feel that the urgency of all the issues I mentioned today with respect to environmental environmental crisis, to these health concerns, to food security, they're so pressing. I at least don't believe I've got the time to kind of work through that scaling up curve, but that's what you have to do to build a business, right? To earn the right to, you know, build the next bigger one, you have to show that it works at a smaller scale. That's how we get there. In terms of like how long it takes, I think it just depends on how big the leaps can be between scales, right? So we've built a pilot facility. We're populating that out, gathering data, learning how much things cost in, in reality versus just on a spreadsheet. Um, that's now allowing us to begin site selection for the next bigger plant that we're going to build somewhere else where energy is uh, has a low carbon footprint, is cheap, water is abundant, et cetera. So I can't put a number on it because I think it, it just depends on, on how fast we can move on these things. But I, I can tell you, my dream is to be able to make the salmon that I was describing that's free of all those contaminants, that is hyper-sustainable for less than what you pay for your Costco salmon today. Um, that's, that's the dream. I love that. That's awesome. I mean, also I love how, I mean, it's not a simple dream, but it is very, very clear what that vision actually is. And as well as the amount of impact wild type would have on the world. That's amazing. And so are you starting though, to have conversations with restaurants, even though your product is still one or two years away? Yes, actually. And in fact, for anybody who's, who's listening, if you know anybody in the seafood uh, or especially sushi world who's interested in sort of the next generation of what's to come of sustainable seafood, contact us. Uh, we're at hello at wildtypefoods.com. We decided early on to not hire an in-house chef. What we did instead, sort of in the spirit of transparency, was to work with several people outside of the company to work with our products. Because we just felt like, A, they wouldn't be part of the echo chamber. And so we'd hear real feedback faster, which will allow us to have quicker iteration cycles. And B, honestly, it felt to us like an opportunity to, to begin the process of chef educating chef, right? Because in the end, wild type can't be the ones out there telling every single chef in the world that this is a thing. And here's how the technology works. It needs to spread, right? And so we wanted to give the tools to people in our chef community to be able to tell one another about this. And so from day one, we, we've worked with chefs outside of the, the company. And even today, we're regularly, do, just last week, we did tastings with brand new chefs. The advantage also from our point of view is we can get input from them before we launch. So like, let's say a big sushi chain comes to us and they're like, hey, Justin, we get it. Salmon population is on the decline. We want to do the right thing by the planet. And we want to help you build this company, right? And, and be ready to launch. 
if they partner with us now, they can have a say on what's the next thing we do after salmon. Exactly what would you like your salmon to taste like? What do you want your fat content to be, right? Because that varies dramatically based on what part of the salmon you take for, for your piece of sushi. All of those things. And believe it or not, things like color and taste vary dramatically from salmon to salmon based on what they're eating and so on. So, so for example, salmon in the Bay Area uh, are white because they don't, they're not eating the, the sort of krill and other things that are, that are red, that give it that, that color. So all of these things, it just gives an opportunity to partner pre-market with people who want to launch with us. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're having those conversations in a very active way right now. I know your product's not in market yet, but do you think there's going to be any maybe pushback from consumers about cell-based type, type products? Or have you seen that since there are meat products already in market that there's been kind of pushback towards cell-based? Yeah. Food is this very emotional thing. I was at a, a meeting hosted by FDA and USDA at the end of 2018, where they were kind of grappling with how as food regulators, should this be overseen and, and regulated, right? And they invited comment from everybody. And I sat there listening to cattle rancher after cattle rancher come up and talk about what their livelihood means to them, right? And they would always introduce themselves as like, hi, my name is Sally. I'm a fifth generation cattle rancher from Texas. So I think there's this just natural tradition particularly in beef and poultry. Seafood's different. We, in the United States, we import the vast majority of the seafood that's consumed. It's not as much of a domestic um, thing as it is on the, on the meat and poultry side. So I, I think there's natural resistance from people that are tied to tradition, particularly because, you know, people like to paint the world as like, you've got on one hand, the people that care about the environment, and then you've got, on the other hand, the incumbents who just kind of want to milk the cow until the cow dies. It's not that black and white, right? I have never met like a commercial or a sports fisherman who doesn't intimately understand that fish stocks are declining and, the, and understands the importance of what that means to their own future livelihood. Um, likewise, on the aquaculture side, people are trying really hard to improve some of the, the things that I talked about. Um, yet, I think there just is this tension of like the way we've always done it versus something new, right? And I think that's going to continue. Um, and and the, the best thing that that we can do is just tell people like, it doesn't have to be one or the other. You can eat both, right? Um, and that's okay. Like the idea is to give you choice, right? As I mentioned, we're going to be 3 billion more people on the planet. I don't have to take market share from commercial fisheries or from aquaculture organizations to be a successful company. I can just sell to all of the new people that are looking to eat seafood in the, in the next half decade. Absolutely. I mean, those are really good points. Something that I was kind of thinking about as you were saying that, I think that you are voting this week. It's certainly pressure from dairy farmers and folks who, and also dairy brands, I'd imagine, we don't know what the vote is. So you can't base, for example, say like plant-based alternative to dairy, if that makes sense. And so I wonder if there's going to be backlash on that side uh, through legislation or just lobbying even at the initial stages to call cell-based salmon or even on the meat side something different. Yeah, good question. Interestingly, FDA uh, in just a couple months ago asked for some information about how we should talk about cell cultivated seafood, right? Uh, inspired by this very thing that you're pointing out. And, and there are a couple of things to say about that. First, it's more complicated than plant-based versus non-plant-based, right? Because our products have salmon cells in them that are genetically identical to the salmon cells. The, and, and by the way, in, that, in our response to FDA's thing, we actually went to their site where they've got all their fish names. And there's also DNA sequences that sort of map to each type of fish. And we just showed that 
they're identical, right? It's, our DNA matches exactly to the DNA of Pacific salmon species there. So first of all, I think it's more complicated than the plant-based thing because our products have salmon cells in them. So that you would be doing a disservice to not call them salmon and be misleading. On the other hand, these were produced in a really different way, right? And we at WildType and I'm sure many other companies have no intention to try to fool people. Like we will definitely tell you this was, this didn't come from a farmed fish. In fact, the next version of our website makes that very clear. that It's not farm raised. It's not wild caught. It's wild type. That's kind of where, where we come down on this is, you know, we, we don't really see a need to have a big food fight about this, you know, pardon the pun, because we do want people to be able to differentiate. And actually we, in partnership with Yale, did a quantitative study that's going to be coming out in a peer-reviewed paper shortly uh, that describes which terms are best suited to actually helping consumers differentiate between conventionally produced seafood and, and what we're doing. I completely agree with you that it's that, that it's certainly not the same in terms of plant-based versus not. It's actually a salmon. I heard my dad telling me how above ground diamond started to uh, to start and traditional diamond miners said, hey, those aren't real diamonds because they don't come from below the ground. And they wanted to call it these diamonds something different. And the government said, no, there actually are diamonds. Like they are like legit diamonds. They're just not your natural diamonds. You know what I mean? In, in that they're not like below ground, but they're actually, so I don't know. It's very, very interesting. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I wish I could give you something that wasn't so proximate, but on the personal side, I recently read Stephen Hawking's book about the brief history of the universe. <laughs> I love reading stuff like that that just like blows away every everything that you think about how the how the world works. I think as an entrepreneur, it's good to go through that from time to time, just challenge dogma and up and down everything that you believe. And quantum physics definitely does that <laughs> based on what you know. And he's just, I mean, a master at explaining super complex topics in, in a way that someone like me can can grasp. On the professional side, you know, the, the Art of War by Sun Tzu is such a good one um, that really is held up to the test of time. What's interesting about that book, it's basically how to play chess in war or in business with one opponent, right? What it gets me thinking about is that in business, you're actually playing multidimensional chess across time, right? So not only are you playing with different uh, factors, so multiple competitors, the social environment that you're working in, your customers, but also yourself across time, right? In, in a way like, where am I going to be in five years? And what should I be doing today to kind of set myself up for, for where we want to be? And so the basic principles of what he talks about within the context of ancient war, I think are, are actually largely applicable for helping to make decisions along the way. So it's just a good, like a good sort of baseline for like, if I don't know what to do, like what would some suit do? I'm excited to add both to the uh, book list. We had a couple other folks that mentioned Art of War, but it's the first time that anyone has mentioned anything from Stephen Hawking. So uh, excited to add that as well. What's the best piece of advice that you've received? I'd say a piece of advice that I've received from multiple people that I care deeply about. So my mom telling me to never give up. That's the advice. And then my wife in the early days, my wife, Jen, in the early days of WildType when things were not looking so good, uh, gave me the same piece of advice. I feel like that's got to be your, your mantra as an entrepreneur in the morning, right? Because there's no shortage of challenges that are existential in nature, right? If you don't figure this out, you're, you're dead as a business, right? So you just can't give up, right? And, and, that, and that's why I think conviction in, in your mission is so important because even in your darkest days, you just sort of have to, have to persevere. So honestly, I'd say, I'd say that's 
my mom didn't sort of intended it to Justin as the future entrepreneur. She, you know, gave it to me as just a human trying to survive in the world. Um, but in retrospect, I think it's super good entrepreneurial advice. No, that is great advice. Great advice. My final question for you is apart from never give up, what's one piece of advice that you have for founders who are currently building? Care about your people, hands down. I spend so much of my time thinking about people on our team. And when you're a young company, you haven't been around for very long, you don't have all the systems in place that you need to, you know, to do a really great job of taking care of people. So you have to ask for their grace to be patient as the company is maturing and as you're making mistakes and learning from them. And I can certainly be a million times better at that. But I, from having talked to other founders, I think they're also grappling very much with the same thing. It's interesting. So you're going to be like episode number 30 or so. I think you're the first one to say care about your people on this show. Um, and I think, and I think it's incredibly important, incredibly important. So what else are people saying just out of curiosity? Never give up certainly comes along. I would say most, most of it involves around getting started and also thinking about momentum, mm. which also sound advice as well. But I love that care about your people. That's really great. Justin, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, this is a blast. Thanks for asking questions I had never thought about before. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Justin. Justin, thanks again for coming on the show. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.